You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Thursday, August the 5th. I'm coming to you once again from Salford. Just a couple more days to go of the uh, Olympic Equestrian Events. Another gold medal for Team GB yesterday and the promise of more of the same on Saturday. And then Tom will be taking the reins next week as I take a little bit of a break. But I know he's got some great stuff planned. Some good stuff on the race course to look forward to this weekend. We've got the Keeneland Phoenix Stakes at the Curra, which we spoke about yesterday. And later in this edition, I'll be talking a little bit about the uh, pre-Morris de Geese, the Group 1 over six and a half furlongs at Deauville. And talking to Kevin Ryan about the great Brando, nine years old, having his 19th run in a Group 1 in a race he first won four years ago. And the trainer believes he might yet have another big day in him. I also put in a call to William Haggis. He's assured me that Nahar will not run in the race. He's met with a little setback and he will reappear later in the season. Uh, William does, however, bring me news of Baid, of Mahafeth, who is likely to run in the Judmont International, and also Al Arsi, who might yet head to Australia after he recovers from his gelding operation. But first of all, big news in the bloodstock industry today, which is that a new bloodstock industry code of practice has been released. It's a 22-page document and the idea is to outlaw bribery and other malpractice from the sales ring. In a moment, I'll be talking to Emma Berry, the European editor of the Thoroughbred Daily News, for her perspective on this. But first of all, uh, Lydia Hislop is with me. Lydia, what is this and how's it come about? Well, the rationale behind it is that problems within the stock and uh, sales industry sector were um, known or at least widely perceived by many uh, to be a, a major problem, um, for, uh, r- ranging right, right through to corruption, uh, that it was an actively off-putting arena for new owners and it was detrimental to the integrity and image of the industry and that there was a risk inevitability of scandal. So back in 2017, Nick Rust, who was the then chief executive of the BHA, uh, launched an investigation. This was led by Justin Felice, who was a retired police officer, and he delivered his report in December 2017. It had a number of recommendations. This that has been announced today is the realisation of some of those recommendations. It gives the BHA greater powers and oversight across the bloodstock industry but it also involves the bloodstock industry itself coming together to more strongly police itself and that is led by the bloodstock industry forum of which Jimmy George is the chairman. Emma Berry is the European editor at the TDN the Thoroughbred Daily News. Emma how do you think this is going to play in the in the bloodstock community? I think it's probably what a lot of the participants would have been expecting. I was personally expecting that Bloodstock agents might have to be licensed. I see that's not being brought in 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 this sort of in the changes that have been announced uh, yesterday. Um, but that the sales houses have sort of greater powers, if you like, to ban um, anyone that they decide you know is not acting within the sort of proper um, rules of the code. So that that's a difference. Um, yeah, and I think it will you know, generally speaking, will act as a deterrent to anyone who was considering perhaps not um, playing by the rules at sales. 
What do you think the most significant change is in terms of the culture of trading bloodstock? What's going to be the most significant change culturally that comes out of this? I don't know. I mean, I think I think if, as stated, um, that the sales houses will make available the... Uh, I think they're looking at making available the ownership of each horse that comes up for auction. I think that will make quite a difference because there's still a bit sort of, you know, sort of grey areas when horses come. You know, quite often you absolutely know it's stated in the catalogue, it's offered by a certain consigner and the property of, you know, Mr. N. Luck. But quite often you don't know that. And certainly, you know, horses now pass through the ring so frequently, or they can do, that sort of the ownership chain gets a bit muddled. So I think that adds an extra layer of confidence to buyers to know if you want to know who absolutely is behind every horse that's being sold i think it gives you would give you more confidence in, you know in 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 your own you know who you're buying from and, and how you know how far you're likely to go and in terms of luck money uh, I, I always think it's a slightly confusing term what, what they really mean here is is payments to agents from vendors essentially bribes to agents from vendors rather than direct money from vendors to purchasers yes and if you're actually talking about bribes then clearly that has not to happen an agent obviously has to be working for the person he's buying the horse for with them you know at the foremost and you know anything being declared to that person of any sort of vested interest here or there you know that again luck money you know it, there's quite a difference between an agent either seeking to benefit from buying a certain horse or being offered a bribe or just a vendor being grateful that someone has bought their horse and sending a case of wine to say thank you. I mean, you know, there's one end of the scale to the other. I don't know whether something like that will be considered under luck money, but if that's, you know, a vendor's choice to do that after the sale, I think that's quite a different thing. But yes, clearly, when it comes to open bribery, um, then that has to be stamped out. And in your considered opinion, Emma, having followed the sales circuit for a number of years and written about it, how necessary do you think these measures were? I think as a deterrent, um, it's you know, very necessary to ensure that particularly, you know, we've got a lot of new people coming to the industry every year, which is, you know, absolutely what we need. We need people coming in and owning horses and they have to be able to come into the market. But, you know, the sales is a very confusing arena when you first come into it. And I think to be able to either go in there on your own and buy with confidence or use your trainer or use your agent to know that, you know, everything is as above board as it can be is an important um, step for British and Irish racing going forward because, um, you know, everything needs to be transparent and people have to be able to want to come into racing and feel that they're not being fleeced. Do you think the sales houses will feel that they've retained a certain degree of control here and that they've not abdicated all their control, all their uh, regulatory control to the BHA? I think so. I'm, I'd personally be very surprised if the BHA um, or HRI, IHRB, whichever, gets very involved in this area. I mean, I, you know, if there was a, a particularly... Um, bad case that came up maybe they would but i do think a lot of this is going to be just governed by the sales houses as much as they have any governance if you like but they have very good relationships with their consigners and with their regular agents and 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 buyers and i think they will you know be very keen to impress upon them that these rules 
are there to be followed and that they have to, you know, if there are people not following them, they have to make sure they clean up their acts or they won't be welcome at the sales. Emma Berry there, the European editor of the Thoroughbred Daily News, the TDN. Uh, Lydia, a couple of interesting points Emma made there. First of all, she was surprised that bloodstock agents were not going to be licensed. Um, Would you agree? Well, that's always been a major sticking point because of how you would do, how you would define an agent. And the the example that it's always put up is, if I buy you one horse a year, am I a bloodstock agent? Um, my answer to that would actually be, yes, you are. <laughs> and uh, because I would be in favour of licensing agents. There's a, there's a problem there as well in that, as far as I am aware, a membership of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents is still voluntary and many of the big players aren't members. So you can still act as a bloodstock agent without being part of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents, although obviously you would still be subject to this code of conduct. And what about some of the finer points of this? What do you think it does tackle? Well, I mean, the thing that it signifies is that because previously the obstacles to to going anywhere in this asset they would have stood in in 2017 was that there was a lack of agreement on the scale or even the existence of a problem. So clearly there has been some recognition within the industry that there is a problem that needs to be addressed. So that's a step forward. Um, The previous FBA code of conduct was toothless and it was policed without independence and had received no complaints. This is often put up as an example of probity and integrity within the industry. But, you know, uh, it also could be used as an argument to say that people had no trust or belief in the process and therefore said they didn't see the point in in stepping through with it. you had to get the breeders and the sales houses in particular to accept that they had a role to play within this and to accept that the problem wasn't exaggerated and that the, or that the problem was, was somewhere else. Um, and also, there had to be some recognition of the BHA's right to interfere, I suppose, because many of its existing powers could have been brought to play previously, but they weren't really recognised as having any kind of oversight in this area. Um, I suppose the problem, the major problem with this is going to be in the policing. Um, You know, how are they actively going to police the things that that many of the things that they have cited there? And what is being put forward is not that different to the previous code, as far as I can see. And most of the things cited, particularly in in the the, um, media that have uh, presented this, are criminal acts anyway. So the police could have been um, called in the past. So as Justin Felicia has said, you'll be judging this, the success of this, on whether people actually use it and whether sales houses actually use the greater powers that that they they now have. Um, Emma says, if Emma's right, that the BHA won't get involved very much. You know, it it comes back to uh, the people within the industry who had to be to to police this now and they have had to be convinced that there was even a problem. So um, I suppose objective viewers looking on are going to have to be convinced that this is actually that robust self-policing will actually go on. Also, I mean, if the BHA gets involved, have they got extra resource, extra staffing, an extra resource to be able to have any oversight in this area? Um, And I suppose there are some other issues. I mean, I I haven't read anything that tackles debt issues, um, you know, in terms of people um, racking up debts with sales houses that they don't pay, which then has knock-on effects. I haven't seen anything mentioned about that because I think that can lead to um, knock-on 
issues and people uh, continue to, to act when uh, what you see on the outside is not actually backed up by uh, the financial realities. So, Lydia, is it robust self-policing or is it just marking one's own homework, to use a phrase of the moment? Well, the, that, the proof will be in what happens over the coming years. So it, it has to be a code of conduct that people are confident enough to come to and actually raise complaints. I mean, previously, it was a, it's a small world. People were frightened of being you know, blacklisted, blackmarked by, by somebody uh, for, for raising a complaint. So they, they, have, they have got to actually do something actively and, and be active in this area. I mean, the, the point that Emma has made, the, the, the horse dis- full disclosure of horse ownership, that that, that Tassels and Goffs have committed to, that is definitely a step forward. I mean, having that kind of... Um, transparency is absolutely fundamental so um if and other sales houses i think should should follow that this across europe i'm also interested in whereas the bha are wanting to back this up with their rules of racing um ireland aren't, aren't necessarily taking that step because i mean for this to be effective clearly it's got to be a pan-european initiative i mean i think you know the signs are positive but the proof will, will be in the realities of this is this a a code that people trust and are and are actively going to use and report and trust the investigation of. Now, moving back to the action on the track, and I wanted to speak, as I do quite regularly on this podcast, to powerful new market trainer William Haggis, because I noticed he had a couple of quite interesting runners, potentially in the Group 1 pre-Morris de Geest at the weekend. Now, as it will transpire very shortly, they're not going to run. But I couldn't resist beginning the conversation by asking about the Goodwood winner, Baid. Yeah, we were very pleased with him there and uh, uh, delighted, absolutely delighted with him. And he proved that, that he's worth a shot at a better race, I think. Uh, is it the timing of the races now that's sort of, not forcing your hand, but you sort of have to go to a Group 1 sooner rather than later? Absolutely, Nick, but there isn't one in England. So from the Sussex to the QE2, that's your lot if you're a miler, um, which is a... Uh, it's never, I've never come across it before, but it's not, not ideal. So the choice is the Jacques Lamara, which is obviously uh, too, I think, too quick. So it's the Moulin on the 5th of September, I think, or the backup is the Celebration Mile. But I really want to go for a, a Group 1 race with him now. And, and that's that's the thing, isn't it? Because the, the the QE2 used to be in September, so the pattern made sense. Now it's shoved back to to October that's why you've got that massive gap between the the Sussex and the and the QE2 I suppose yeah but you know you'd think we could have one in England wouldn't you um but there you go uh we have to go to France and that's complicated in its own way but you know if all goes well in in Paris then it's the QE2 or nothing if it's bottomless at Ascot you won't probably go we'll see um how how ground contingent do you think he is or might be well, I thought he was pretty good on fastish ground uh, leading up to Goodwood and was concerned about the ground, but he seemed to handle that fine. So, um, you know, I wouldn't want bottomless ground, but uh, he clearly goes on, on both types at this stage. I mean, it's for people like me and other people around you to get wildly excited about these horses. That kind of is our job. Uh, you've tried to keep a lid on it to this point. Um, to what extent did Goodwood mean you can't really keep a lid on it much longer? Well, I'm as excited as you, Nick, uh, to have a horse of this calibre, but I much prefer him to do the talking rather than me, and uh, uh, and that's, for me, the best way round. So, 
you know, he's obviously a talented horse because every time I throw him in a better race, he does better. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's great for us, great for us. Uh, and you're not going to run Nahar in the Morris de Geese this weekend, no? No, he, he had a bit of a blip. Um, we're sort of playing catch-up with him. I'm hoping to get him ready for probably in early September, probably go for the Garraby Stakes at York and then try and get him uh, for the um, champion sprint. But he wouldn't want heavy ground either. So uh, we shall see. And has Alazi got over his gelding operation okay? Yeah, apparently he's fine. He's actually back in today. He's been at Shadwell uh, recovering from his castration and he's been swimming because I feel that uh, if he can learn to swim, which apparently is very proficient at it, we don't have a pool at home, then if he does go to Dubai next March... Uh, they have a swimming pool there, a big, long, 100-metre uh, straight pool in the quarantine centre, so he can swim rather than go on the track, which is quite firm. Okay, so that that's his sort of long-term target, is it, the Shima Classic? Well, it could be. He could be. He's not going to go to Melbourne. He might go... Well, I mean, these things have got to be discussed. He might go with a Dave to uh, Sydney and run in the Tancred Stakes. We'll see. But that's next April, so... My God, he... He could be deadly in Australia, couldn't he? Uh, well, we dream, we dream. You got it's a long way. You got to get there in one piece. But uh, he could be quite useful in that sort of race. Yeah. One, just one last one, I promise. And Mahafeth lo looks like a miler now, doesn't he? I was, I was dead wrong about that. Well, I don't know. Um, it was a complete balls up, uh, York. I'm afraid, and my mistake. Um, the pace was too slow. He was too far behind. It was just wrong. Uh, my gut feeling is to put a line through it and have a stab at the Judmont, um, but we'll see. Um, there's not really much else for him at a mile. Uh, by his going for it, he is in the celebration mile, but I think uh, both Angus and Jim and Richard Hills are, uh, uh, feel that he's not really a miler, or that Baye's got much more speed than him. So we shall see. So it may well be the Judmont. We'll see. And have you got a nice? Nice two-year-old or two to unleash on us in the next few weeks. Maybe, at, maybe at York. I hope so. No, nothing at York. But I hope we've got one or two two-year-olds. They're all just needing their unusual form for me. Um, but we run a couple of nice two-year-olds tomorrow night at Newmarket. Um, you know, and they're sort of the next batch. Uh, William Haggis there, and the thing, Lydia, about these fortnightly sort of interviews with William Haggis is that it's you you ring about one horse and you can't help asking about a whole load more because it's like sort of dipping your hand into a big bucket of sweets really and there's so so many so many nice horses in the stable Baid possibly the nicest yes that's exciting like there, there was an indication following his win in the thoroughbred stakes that uh, William was coming round to the idea of going group one because I, I was slightly surprised I thought he might go group two and sort of keep it slowly slowly but it was clear that he was coming round to to that idea so it sounds like the Mulan will be the target on the 18th of August and I will try and rise above uh, the view about there should be a British uh, Group 1 mile in the period that he's talking about. You know, we are the European pattern. That's part of the strength. Yeah, but but it, that, that still, my my point to him is still stands that the QE2 has moved. So if the QE2 had been in its normal slot as it was 12, 14 years ago in September, then he'd have just gone, he could have gone celebration mile QE2, which is what it was sort of leading you to. 
he, he could well have done. He could well have done. But he, as I said, he, he wants to go. He wants to go Group One next, doesn't he? Anyway, um, uh, the movement of the of the Queen Elizabeth II stakes to try and uh, create Champions Day. You know, nothing. When you move things like that in the in the pattern, there is you're never going to have a hundred percent positive outcomes, are you? And it's a case of whether the of, of what you've created. Uh, you're more pleased with than what you left behind. I mean, now to be honest, they just need to make sure they get a two-year-old race moved on to Champions Day, and um, and I'll be happy. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. It is a whole other podcast. You're not going to bite, are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I, to be continued. To be continued. Oh, I, I, I mean, it's definitely continuing. Oh, is it good? Good. I'm pleased. I think the conversation needs to be had, and needs to be had a lot. Well, lots of people are of your point of view, aren't they? Yes, I'm taking it you're not, but you probably, you probably, are you allowed to declare an interest? No, oh, I, I, I think it would be unethical of me to do so, wouldn't it? Uh, probably, yeah, <laughs> probably. So it would to be continued anyway. On we move. Any other observations out of William Haggis there? Mahafeth, is they going to have another dart at 10 furlongs? Well, I'm pleased about that. I do think the race was, was a bit inconclusive. Um, I... Uh, 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 I think that he is a Ken Furlong horse and not a miler, although I can see the argument for it and wouldn't be averse to trying it. But it's interesting, isn't it, that those closest to Baid just think he's quicker, the better miler of the two. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if the view is that Mahafeth isn't still a top-class horse, then they are going to feel that they need to go uh, up in trip. I, I, I welcome him running in the international. That would be fantastic. I mean, it, York is really um, sizing up to be a sizzler, I think. And frankly, and, I, and he was playing it down, but if, if, if a gelded and pliable Alazi heads to Australia, all I can say to my Australian friends is, stand by. <laughs> I know, that was quite exciting, wasn't it? Um, and I hope we're going to see the fruits of it over here as well, and not just in Australia. One thing I did want to mention, though, it was about the um, entries as things stand for the Morris de Geese and the Jacques Lemoir. So um, there are 18 in the Morris de Geese, of which six are domestic and 12 are international. And 19 in the Jacques Lamoua, of which six are domestic, and 13 international. Uh, mostly made up by British and Irish, but of course Wesley Ward has Campanelli in the, in the Morris de Geese. But that's quite striking, isn't it? It's extremely striking. Morris de Geese, not surprising particularly, because French sprints have always been thin on on horses. I mean, ironically, given the fact they've got the best sprinter in Europe at the moment in Suiza. Uh, but a mile race, you'd, that that's a worry. I mean, a division where the French were always habitually very, very strong, those top, top class mile races, to have only, what was it, a third of the field? Mm. Well, uh, and this is an issue, this is an issue not just for France, for the European pattern, because you don't want any one of your major partners to be... Um, any stronger or weaker than each other. It, it, it works best when uh, we're all uh, working together with, with our separate um, strengths all brought together. So at the moment, there's a double whammy in France in that A, the prize money is very good, and B, certainly in terms of numbers, um, the the home defence looks a lot weaker than perhaps if you were to head over to Ireland. So that's, that is a threat to... Um, the Britain's main races and Isla's race races, but mainly Britain's main races due to the, our financial model, and is something that we need to be focused upon. I mean, we have in this season been somewhat um, 
uh, cushioned from the effects of this because of the complications of moving horses around as has made for many people it to be the line of least resistance to go for Britain's best group, group races but you know the the Moulin is an example of you know where the the band of credibility is stretched so far that it breaks you know you, we, we have to be focused on this issue we need to make sure that the best horses um, continue to race in in Britain as much as they possibly can well one horse who definitely will be uh, the pre Morris de Geest is Brando he's won it before he's been second in it he's a veteran of 18 group one races he's twice been second in the July cup Indeed, he ran a brilliant race against the odds, 150 to 1, in the July Cup last time out. And I put it to his trainer, Kevin Ryan, who loves this horse dearly, that he is no back number on the track. No, he ran a really good race in July Cup, and uh, it wasn't his favourite ground. Um, we were in two miles for to run, and I thought he's, uh, he, he showed up very well on ground that wasn't in his favour. He's uh, Hopefully, there's plenty of rain around in Deauville, and... Um, it's his favourite soft ground. Uh, we know he's he's good form at the track, so uh, he's already a winner of Morris East. And if he's another year older, he seems to have retained all his ability. Was there ever a, a point in his career where you thought he was he was on the downgrade that you you wouldn't get him back to this level of ability? Well, you know, he's. Um, I think the only times he's ever started to run uh, disappointing is when he hasn't had his favourite ground. And um, but we always said we ever showed us any signs that he wasn't up to that grade anymore. Then you know that every day that would stop with him. You know he's been a, a fantastic horse and he's over a million pounds in prize money and uh, he's been a great servant to the yard. So we'll do what's best by him. But at the moment he's still in his homework. He's, he still loves enjoys his work and uh, loves going racing and. Um, as we saw in the July Cup, that he, he still retains all his ability. Well, the July Cup was, was a bit of a surprise to me, Kevin, even if it wasn't to you, because the ground was, was really quite quick. And I, I went back through, and he recorded his highest racing post rating by some way in the July Cup on fast ground since 2018 when he'd been second in the same race. I mean, did that did that surprise you a little bit? It, it did because, you know, I only decided literally half an hour before the race I'd like take his chance and he just felt to safe ground and he didn't particularly come down the hill great you know Tom had to just hang on to him and, but when he hit the rising ground he really picked up and um, you know it was, it was very encouraging going forward and of course he was only beating a nose in the champion sprint last year a group one race on very soft ground that six and a half furlongs at Deauville I mean if only every race was six and a half furlongs he'd be he'd have won most of those 18 group ones wouldn't he yeah, look, he's um, he, he doesn't stay. We tried seven four and he doesn't stay it. Um, and the six and a half because of his tactics, he he still, you know, you can't ride him any closer to the pace. He, he loves that just being, you know, tucked away and, you know, just waiting for a finishing kick. And you'd have thought he's he's got older. He maybe wants to ride him a bit differently. And but I've tried that as well, and it, it just he's still the same horse as he was as as a five year old. You have to ride him. The exact same way. Just give me some idea as, as to the status of this horse in the yard, Kevin. 
Oh, he's um, you know he's he's a legend. You know, There's, I don't think one person walks past his box without stopping and saying hello to him. You know, all, all the staff here love him, and Tracy has looked after him since from the day he arrived in the yard. You know, it's, it's Tracy is it's like 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 her child. You know, um, she she. she 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 sleeps with the horse, you know. Um, when he goes away racing, she just she's so passionate about him, and she's she's very protective of him. To be fair, um, so when a horse, you know, puts that sort of mark on on a yard and, and the people in it, and and the people involved in it, including owners, and you know, they're, they're very special horses, you know. And uh, I think that a lot of the, a lot of the outside world don't see within a racing yard. How, how much uh, how much remark these horses leave on us, you know, and how how much we miss them when when they're not able to do the job for us anymore. Um, but like when he does, the day that comes for his retirement, he will he will have a very very good retirement, and uh, for the rest of his life he'll be he'll be looked after like a king. Oh, it's so well put. Uh, do you believe in your heart of hearts, and you know this horse so well that there could be one really really big day, one Group One day still in him? I definitely think, yeah, uh, I, I said going down to ask this to, to, to Pete Dange last year and I said, you know, this could be the day. Um, he was so well going into the race and the conditions and, and uh, how close did he come, you know, to, to short to the short heads, you know. And, um, and you know, he, I, I, you never write him off. I, uh, funny enough, as soon as the press write him off, he seems to bounce back and bite him. You know, um, which you do, which you do on a regular basis. But uh, I, I always let him do the talking, and he, he seems always, he, 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 he seems to always roar very loud and and come back fighting. And um, no, he's a, he's a wonderful one, of course. Thank you to Kevin, to William Haggis, to Emma Berry. Lydia is still with me, and Lydia has a winner for you today. I hope. I am going to go for the reapplication of Sheen Murphy and the first time and much needed application of cheek pieces on Raven's Arc in the 2.30 at Brighton. Raven's Arc, 2.30 at Brighton for a Sheen Murphy to follow up a winner on this podcast yesterday from Jane Mangan. Lydia, thank you very much. Thank you all very much for listening. I will see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.